0: Salvation will never have its rightful result and place in our lives until we grasp both what we are saved from and to. I want you to think about that statement for a moment. See, the Bible consistently speaks of our desperate plight apart from Christ. We are alienated from God. We are subjects of His righteous wrath. We are hostile to Him. We are his enemies and under the curse imposed by divine law. Which means as urgent and as pressing as are the many psychological, financial, medical, personal predicaments and needs that you and I face, the greatest need is the fact that you and I need a Savior. Because we are in danger of an eternal judgment from God that we rightly deserve because of our sin and idolatry. Salvation, therefore, is primarily deliverance from or rescue from the consequences that are incurred because of our rebellion against our Creator. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at a section of a letter that Paul wrote to 1 Corinthians first century Christians who were living in Colossae, where Paul says that you and I, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, have been made spiritually alive. Secondly, we've had our sins forgiven. And third, and very importantly, we share in the triumph over the powers of darkness because we are in Jesus who secured the victory. If we could have the slide move Here's the takeaway. One more. Here's the major takeaway. All right. This is what I want you to come away with this morning. You and I will never understand, nor will we be capable of appreciating what God has done for us in Christ until we come to grips with the horrific, hell deserving spiritual condition in which God's grace found us. You know, Paul specifically in this passage mentions two things that you and I are saved from. We're saved from our sin, from our spiritual death, and we're saved from the, the debt that is ours. He says that we're dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. And second, he says we're in debt to God infinitely beyond our capacity I want you to look, if you would, at verse 13. Your Bible should be open to Colossians chapter 2. And again, I want you to look, please, at Colossians 2 verse 13, where it says the following, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Christ. That word translated sin means a false step, a blunder, a crossing over a known boundary. And when Paul says that you and I are dead in our sins, what he's saying is that it is because of our sin, it is by reason of our sins that we are spiritually dead. Dead. Paul, in a very real sense here, is highlighting the state or the condition of spiritual death in which people today languish. And he says we're dead. Now, when you and I read that, we oftentimes have a problem. Because we look around us and we say, how in the world can you say that people are dead? Especially when we see them walking around. I mean, I see the gifted athlete with seemingly boundless energy and strength. I see the academic scholar whose intellectual brilliance is almost beyond imagination. I see the non-Christian from every walk of life who is charismatic in terms of their personality, they're eloquent in their speech, they're good in their conduct. Doug, how can you possibly say that people who appear to be very much alive are dead. John Stott put it as good as anyone when he said the following. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit toward him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. He says they are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. So we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert that person may be, is a living death. And those who live it are dead even while they are living. In other words, what the Scriptures teach is simply this. The non-Christian is dead in two senses. Number one, he is insensitive to God. And secondly, he's incapable of responding to God. The spiritually dead are indifferent to God. They're indifferent to the beauty of God, to the holiness of God. They have no conviction or fear of the horrors of hell. Have you ever heard The non-Christian joke about hell. They'll say something so stupid like, well, at least that will be where the party is. How foolish. Listen, nothing in the gospel message touches their heart. They are oblivious to the things of God. But not only are they just oblivious to Him, they hate the things of God. So they're insensitive, but secondly, they are incapable of seeing the beauty and splendor of Christ and responding to the gospel call. Not because they lack the necessary mental or intellectual or emotional faculties. The problem is they lack the will to respond to Christ. They don't want to follow Christ. They're enslaved to a heart that hates God. They don't care. There's no appeal of Him to them. They're spiritually lifeless. They are unregenerate. They're spiritual corpses. But friend, here's where the good news comes in. Again, look at your Bible. He says in verse 13, Colossians 2, He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Part of God's sovereign and powerful determination is to raise you to spiritual life. And if being dead means you lack sensitivity and sensibility for the gospel, unwillingness to respond to it, then being made alive means that the Spirit has imparted to you new sight, new taste, a new capacity that enables you to recognize and respond to the saving grace of Jesus Christ you've been at mid-valley for any length of time you've heard me say this time and time again when we talk about the non-christian who might be among us what do we pray for we pray that their eyes would be opened their ears would be able to hear and their hearts would be open to the gospel message and by the way did you notice in verse 13 it says that god made you alive with christ That little phrase, with Christ, is what theologians call our union with Christ. In other words, our new life derives from Him. Apart from Him, we are dead. The life we now live is a sharing in the life which Jesus received when God raised Him from the dead. To be made alive is Paul's way of describing what we call the new birth or being born again. And I think it's very important us to remember that it's not a moral reformation. It's not an exchanging of one set of habits for another. It's not a redirection of one's life, but a recreation of one's life. When a person is born again, there is a radical renewal of the entire inner being of that man or woman. Before the Holy Spirit imparts life, What Lazarus was physically, you were spiritually. And you remember in the story of Lazarus, what was he? He was dead. He was dead as a doornail. What I am saying is simply this, that beneath and before all the positive human responses to the gospel, whether it's faith, repentance, love, or conversion, there was a supernatural, efficacious, mysterious work of God the Holy Spirit in your life and mine. And I can't explain it, neither can you. I love what the hymn writer said. He says, I know not how the Spirit moves convincing men of sin. He talks about creating faith in Him. That person is given that capacity to believe, and the Holy Spirit regenerates and gives spiritual life to the person who will believe. And he's converted. Let me add, and this is very, very important, Paul is not saying that people are born alive and then gradually through sinning experience a slow process of spiritual and moral degeneration that eventually consummates in death. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that you and I are dead on arrival. I like that term. It's not that we start out good and then sort of gradually go downhill. The Bible says that all people are born spiritually dead and they remain dead until God sovereignly infuses life and brings them by His Spirit to faith in Jesus Christ. And I can't explain it. Neither can you. Look at the end of verse 13. He says, God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave us all our sins. Friend, you and I were insensitive to the beauty and the sweetness of Jesus. We were morally decayed, morally depraved, but God in his sovereign mercy and grace made us alive with the Spirit. And not only did he make us alive, but Paul says, in addition to that, we've been forgiven i love that once spiritually indebted we're now forgiven as i was thinking about this i realized most people are in some form of financial debt if you're here this morning and you are just have no debt whatsoever you are an anomaly as dave ramsey said you are weird (laughs) but you know the majority of people owe money right either for a car, a home, perhaps a student loan, or something of that sort. And although that debt can indeed be burdensome, hopefully you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And that light is not an oncoming train. And hopefully you are energized by the fact that one day the debt that is yours is going to be paid in full. And you will receive from your creditor a piece of paper releasing you from future financial obligations. You know, we as a church are looking forward to that day when we are going to burn the mortgage on this church. We don't want to be in debt. We don't want to be in financial bondage. And we are making efforts towards getting rid of our debt But can you imagine being burdened with a debt from which you will never be set free? You know, I I just shudder sometimes when I think of the amount of debt that some people have as it relates to their student loans or their homes or their cars or their boats and all those things. Friend, it is psychologically devastating to never see an end to one's indebtedness. Now, friend, extend that out in the spiritual realm because such is the spiritual indebtedness of sinners to God. But you know what? Jesus, as we sang about just before the message, paid it all. The imagery that Paul has in mind here describes the reality of having our sins forgiven. He says that we have been, that debt has been canceled. There's been a a change as far as the legal indebtedness that was ours. That phrase in verse 14 is a reference to an IOU. Some translations render it record of debt. It's a signed acknowledgement of indebtedness. Do you remember when you bought your home unless you were in a position to pay cash for it? Remember what you did? You took out a mortgage. And you signed a promissory note saying for the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you would make a monthly payment on that debt. And Paul is saying here that there was a record of debt that was not only against us, but that that record of debt condemned us insofar as we are guilty because we can never pay it back. Now, what was the penalty for non-payment of that debt? Was it a bad credit rating? Was it a repossession of, of your property? No, you know what the Bible says the penalty for that debt was? It was death. But here's the good news of the Gospel, and that is that God has canceled our indebtedness to Him. That word canceled there in the original language means that God has wiped the slate clean. It carries with it the idea of blotting something out or erasing it. God says through the prophet Isaiah, he says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. But you know, God didn't simply tear up the note and throw it away. He didn't say, don't worry, folks. You know, we'll just let bygones be bygones. You know, you owe that student loan back. Just forget it. The government will pay for that. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the infinitely righteous one who cannot pretend that there's no debt, he paid it in full and listen what it says. He nailed it to the cross. See verse 14? He says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That phrase may have an allusion to the ancient practice of affixing to the cross an inscription for the crimes that person was being punished for. And if that indeed is the case, that what, the imagery that Paul has here, what he's saying here is that the accusations that were made against us, our sin, was nailed to the cross, and we bear it no More. God's justice and holiness are at stake, as well as our eternal destiny, and a full and complete payment was made. Friend, whatever we owed, He paid. Whatever penalty or judgment we incurred, He endured. So, you know what Paul says here in these verses? First of all, He says, We've been made alive with Christ. Secondly, he says our sins have been forgiven. And I want you to notice the third thing that he says in verse 15. And that is he says that he has disarmed and triumphed over the forces of Satan. Now before we unpack verse 15, I want to comment on something that is very important. Candidly, I don't think we talk about as often as we should. We here at Mid-Valley Bible Church believe in the existence as well as the activity of demonic spirits. We believe that there is an unseen world out there and there is a raging battle that is taking place between the forces of good and the forces of evil between God and Satan and friend that spiritual warfare is all too real and you and I need to be discerning when it comes to the schemes of the devil we need to be diligent to put on the whole armor of God so that you and I can stand firm in the battle against principalities and power friend our primary battle in life is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and rulers and authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places now having said that paul says and this is what i want you to grasp and it is so critical that we understand it Paul says in verse 15 that the very same enemies against whom we fight have been disarmed. They've been displayed and they have been defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. Friend, we're in a battle, a spiritual battle. But here's the good news. We fight a defeated foe. And you know what the outcome of that conflict has already been determined our enemy has received a deadly blow his judgment has come and his doom is sealed you know in what many consider to be the battle hymn of the reformation martin luther talked about this remember that great hymn he wrote a mighty fortress is our god Listen to what he said. He said, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Now notice the next line. He says, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His, talking about Satan's, craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. But here's the best part. The second stanza. It says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Sure one little word shall fail him. For that is good news. You know what he's saying? Even though Satan still goes about like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour, his authority and power have been checked. And his days are numbered. Friend, we are engaged in a war, and we ought never forget that. But the outcome has already been decided. And guess who wins? The good guys. We win. And I want to suggest this, that there is great here spiritual harm done when we fail to recognize the existence of the demonic realm. Ignorance of Satan's schemes and a reluctance to confront the enemy in biblically appropriate ways opens the door to untold damage, oppression, and spiritual bondage. And one of the reasons some folks are in the mess they're in today is they have, they have failed to recognize that there is a spiritual battle going on. Today, in the name of cultural sophistication and intellectual, intellectual respectability, which is code words for pride, the demonic has either been denied altogether at, or at best relegated to a pre-scientific medieval mentality that is beneath the dignity of forward-thinking folks in the 21st century. That's another fancy way of saying we sometimes think we're too big for our britches. Okay? Okay. You know, we think we're above that. We, we don't need that. Friend, that is a lie. And what happens is that many within the professing church have opened wide the doors to demonic intrusion. Now, let me also say that the other extreme is equally as dangerous. And that is where you see a demon behind every bush. So much so that we're, we are rendered you know, in a fetal position, scared spitless. Friend, both extremes are wrong. And here's what I want you to see. Paul says you and I have been made alive, we have been forgiven, and third, the forces of darkness have been dealt a fatal blow at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. He's talking about what Jesus did. He said he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them and he triumphed over them by the cross. If you like alliteration, let me give it to you. He disarmed, he displayed, and he defeated his enemy. And that is a glorious truth. Friend, it's summed up by what the apostle john said when he said greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world now there's one final comment that's in order what paul describes in colossians 2:15 was invisible to those who were standing at the foot of the cross i want you to think about this for a moment when both the friend and foe of jesus stood at the cross where Jesus Christ died. No one, not one single person present, could see this remarkable phenomenon with their physical eyes. You know what people back then saw? They saw Christ's death on the cross as the end. They had no concept of the glorious victory that was achieved by his death and subsequent resurrection. But you know what Paul is telling us here? He's telling us that in the cross, the enemy of your soul and mine was disrobed and he was disarmed. What what at first seemed like an obscene instrument of execution was something that God used to put to open shame His enemy. Because it was at the cross of Jesus Christ that Jesus triumphed over His demonic enemy. That's what took place. You know, in what can only be described as an ironic twist, what what seemed from the human perspective as a place of defeat and humiliation turned out to be something of a triumph and a great victory. F.F. F. Bruce perhaps said it better than anyone. He says, As our Lord was suspended there, bound hand and foot to the wood in apparent weakness, the rulers and authorities imagined they had him at their mercy. And flung themselves upon him with hostile intent. But far from suffering their assault without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of all the armor in which they trusted and held them aloft in his mighty outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished state. And then I love this. Now they are disarmed, disabled, and dethroned, and the shameful tree has become the victor's triumphal chariot, before which his captives are driven in humiliating procession, the involuntary and impotent confessors of their overcomer's superiority. And friend, that is what we remember when we come to the Lord's table. Jesus, so that we would never forget the cross, so that we would never forget the sacrifice that he made, instituted the Lord's table. And when we come to this table, you know what we celebrate among other things, and there are many, we celebrate that you and I who are spiritually dead have been made alive You and I who were in debt to God because of our sins have had that debt forgiven. And that you and I who were enslaved to sin and his powers have been liberated. Because at the cross, Satan was defeated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder this morning. We pray now that as we come to this table that you would stir us to a deeper, more meaningful commitment and walk with you. We pray, Father, that if there's anyone here who is uh, living a life of disobedience, we pray that they would confess that right now so that they can come to this, his table, with a heart that is, is beating for you and hands that are clean and a life that is committed to living more like Jesus. And we pray as God's people towards that end in His name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.